Oh, Lord God, you who raised the sun, you who poured forth the spirit, breathe life afresh into us today, hope afresh into us as we consider the glorious truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. The Bible is full, of course, of hope and of encouragement for life in this world, even though, especially when life in this world is characterized by groaning and by pain, we find passages that bring us great hope and of passages, verses, or even phrases that bring to us tremendous hope. Surely one of the top, and for me, one of the, at the, at the very top, is this phrase that is repeated twice in the passage that I just read for us, we shall be changed. And yes, all week I have been singing that throughout the house. My, that is good news for us. But one asks the question, well, why is that good news? Why, why is it good news that we will be changed? Shouldn't we just be a little bit more content with ourselves? Maybe it's just low self-esteem that makes us long to be changed into something else. Maybe I should be a person who's just happier with who I am in this world. Maybe I should have listened to the words of Billy Joel. When he said, don't go changing to try and please me. I love you just the way you are. Maybe I should have embraced that, forget this change thing. Or conversely, maybe I should not, as a person, wait for change to happen to me, but rather be the change. Change my stars. Why is this good news that we shall be changed? The answer is this. And this is going to be dark for you on an Easter morning, but it's what Paul's talking about. The answer is this. In case case you haven't noticed it, you and I are clothed with death. One of the writers that I was reading this week in preparation was very astute, very scientific in this observation. The mortality rate hovers consistently at 100% for humanity. As wonderful and as complex as our bodies are, as advanced as medicine and technology may be, the inevitable and incontrovertible fact is that we die. Whether that be sudden or after a prolonged illness, whether it be characterized by groaning or screams or silence. Our body is corruptible, it is perishable, and it will die. This body, mine, yours, no matter how much you watch what you eat, no matter how often you go to the gym, and work out. It is not fit 
for heaven. I tell you this, brothers, verse 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the perishable. Now, we've got to be a little bit careful with reading that because it could sound like, wait a minute, did Paul, who seems to be arguing for a bodily resurrection, just say that there is, in fact, no bodily resurrection since flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God? When he says flesh and blood, and this is not only true in this particular passage, but there are other ones that you can point to in the New Testament as well, he is referring to this present body, the stuff that you can feel right now, this life, this body in its present form, in this state, it is subject to corruption and to decay. There's a parallel passage to this one, slightly different, uh, but in 2 Corinthians 5, don't turn there right now, but if you want to look at it later, it's wonderful. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5. And in that passage, Paul describes this body as a tent. Now, a tent is useful, helpful. It's good to have a tent if you're out camping. But by definition, a tent is temporary and it is impermanent. It is going to be discarded. You and I are wearing clothes and it's Easter Sunday. So I assume that you probably looked around the closet and found some really nice clothes and tried to think about what should you wear for Easter Sunday in particular. But however you and I dress ourselves, it's a tent. It's going to be discarded. It's going to get holes in it. Every piece of fabric you wear is going to get holes, moths, or something is going to consume the fabric and the flesh as well. And the reason for this state of things, the reason why it's like this, is found in verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Paul doesn't present death as a thing that exists on its own. Rather, he sees death as a consequence of sin, a consequence of Adam's sin and ours. You and I are not the solution to how you get around the problem of a decaying, dying body. We are the problem. We are the ones who created the problem. And if you want to put it in a kind of odd juxtaposition, we conceived and gave birth to death by our sin. That's what we have produced. That's how we have reproduced. We have become together reproducers of death and sin in Adam. And the result of that is that these bodies of ours break down. Now, we try to hold them together. When you're a little kid, you believe that these bodies can be held together with a Band-Aid. Just this week, I think it was Jack, right? Didn't Jack have a boo-boo that he wanted to show me this week? Jack had one that he showed me, and somebody else. Can't remember who. Oh, I'm sorry. I think it was I think it was Rachel. Didn't Rachel have a boo-boo on her finger? You think, you, you think that it can be held together with a Band-Aid. As you get a little bit older, you think maybe some sports tape, some athletic tape will get you through, and then some ace, and then some wraps, and then some sleeves, and then some braces. 
And then when your eyes start to go, we get glasses to hold that together. We get hearing aids to improve our hearing. And I would say there's no small number of us in this room right now who have a little bit of titanium in us. It's in our hips. It's in our knees. Maybe in our shoulders a little bit. All sorts of ways to try and patch this thing together to keep it from falling apart. But it is plainly evident to all of us that eventually it just won't do. Eventually, it's going to fall apart and we will not be able to hold it together. This body, this flesh and blood as it is currently constituted will not stand up to the joyous rigors of the kingdom of God. We need to be changed. Well, how quickly would such a change take place? That seems a rather monumental change to take place. How how long do you need to do that? After all, if you go into a renovation project, we don't know. I mean, they promise us that this time renovating in here will, will not take an extended amount of time, but you know how this works. They give you a certain amount of time, and it always takes longer than the time that was given. How long does it take you to get your body in shape, this physical decaying body? How long does that take right now? It takes time. Think about it this way. How long does it take you to change something spiritually in your life? To overcome some vice, to put on some virtue. Change seems to us to take time. How long does it take to change this body of life? Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment... In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. How long does that take? There isn't language for Paul to describe a shorter term, a quicker transformation. There's no language he can use. This is it. He's at the quickest thing that he can think of. In the Greenwich of eternity. The great I am, the eternal one, keeps a close eye on time. He measures it out, the span of our lives. In the fullness of time, he sent forth his son. And when the time is just right, At the appointed time, the trumpet will sound. The great alarm of history will go off. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of an alarm or a trumpet sounding. Do you think of the sound of the horns that go off or the volunteer fire departments that sound across the land? Do you think of your alarm clock in the morning? The trumpet will sound. And that is the summons. And it won't take any time before all of the earth is gathered together in the presence of God. The time appointed. And we'll be changed. We'll be changed at that time, in in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. But what kind of change will it be? What will this 
new resurrected body be like? Even this uh, Wednesday night, some of us were talking about some of these things. And very quickly, the question came up. I won't say who asked the question. How old will we be in heaven? What's it going to be like? What, what, what age will my body be like in heaven? Listen, we've got to be careful with this. Listen to verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And Paul says, you foolish person. So we have to be very careful when we ask what the change is going to be like. Paul's point here is the fact of the resurrection, that it is going to take place rather than a physiological description for us of all of the characteristics of the new body and what you'll be able to do with the new body or what you won't be able to do with the new body. He doesn't get into those details for us, but he does provide us with some compare-contrast points by which we can at least think and hope about this new life, about the new bodies that will be ours. And here are the points that he gives. Some of these are found in the section that I read for us and some just in the verses preceding it. But this new body will be imperishable rather than perishable. It will be immortal rather than mortal. It will be a heavenly body rather than an earthly body. It will be a glorious body rather than, he characterizes our bodies now, as dishonorable. It will be a body that is clothed with power as opposed to the present one, which is characterized by weakness. And the last that he gives is that it will be a spiritual body instead of a natural body. The uh, perhaps summary statement is found in verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, that includes certainly our, our, our spirit, our soul, what constitutes us inwardly as people. But in this case, Paul's point that he's making is bodily. And so the reference point that he gives is to say your body, your new body, is going to be characteristic of the one who is in heaven, namely Jesus Christ. So you want to know what your new body is going to be like? It's going to be like Jesus' resurrected body. And there's one other picture in the Gospels for you of a glorified body. It's found in the transfiguration. You put those things together, you get a sense, a little bit of what this means, the contrast between the perishable and the imperishable, between the mortal and the immortal the earthly and the heavenly. The new bodies, therefore, will be characterized by substance, in fact, a greater substance than we can currently imagine. They'll be characterized by holiness. They will be characterized by life, whereas these present bodies that you and I have are instead characterized by death and decay. That's what happens with these bodies. They're swallowed up by death. They're overcome by decay over time. The characteristic of the new body, conversely, is death swallowed up by victory. Victory is the characteristic of the new body. And in the parallel passage, as I had noted before, 2 Corinthians 5, There he also has the phrase, death has been swallowed up. But instead of saying by victory, he says death has been swallowed up by life. 
And so the characteristic of the new body will be victory and life instead of the current body of death. In other words, the new bodies that we're going to get will be, in fact, perfectly suited, perfectly adapted, perfectly fitted for the new heavens and the new earth. Your new body will never break down. No matter how bright heaven is, you will never go blind. You will never get sunburned. You will not need blood thinners. You will not need any medications to lower your cholesterol. You will never pull a muscle. You will never throw out your back. Many of you who are here today are involved in the healthcare industry. Some of you produce medicines for our declining health to help us in this body of decay that we have. Some of you sell insurance because the body decays and you've got to pay for the medicines. And some of you are the beneficiaries of that insurance because you work as doctors and as nurses and as physical therapists trying to take care of that which will fall apart inevitably. I have news for you. In the eternal kingdom of God, you are out of work. There is nothing for you to do there. You will have to find other employment. I might have to find other employment because there will be no need for teaching when Jesus is in our presence. But nevertheless, you're out of a job. You'll be you. I'll be me. But almost unimaginably so because we shall be changed. And that's that whole essence you get with them looking at Jesus going, it's Jesus, right? It's Jesus. We don't have to say that it's Jesus. It's Jesus, right? It's the same man. It's the same Jesus. And yet there's something so unimaginable about it that it's hard for us to conceive of the change that shall be ours. What's the ground of this change? Is it wishful thinking? Is it, as the disciples thought when the women told them, an idle tale? A spiritual opiate to soothe the soul's the suffering masses. What gives us the right to think that this idea of a resurrection, that this hope of everlasting life and of new bodies just might be true? Verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives the victory to us in and through Jesus. Now, I'm a pastor, and one of the things that means is as a pastor, I end up at a lot of funerals. I end up in a lot of difficult places. And most people, there are a few exceptions, very pure atheists, of which there are not a lot, but there are out there. But besides the very, very, very pure atheists, when I'm at a funeral, it inevitably, it always happens. Regardless of what people believe, they come up to me or they say together in conversation, such and such is at a better place, in a better place, not suffering anymore. Everybody wants to believe it. Everybody wants to think that's a good story. Makes us feel better to think that our loved one is in a better place. Enjoying Frank Sinatra, whatever it is. For Paul, that is silly. And it is foolish 
and it's vain speculation. Paul doesn't base one bit, one word of his theology on a, gee, wouldn't it be nice if, kind of idea. He scoffs at that. Paul's foundation for his belief in our resurrection in these new bodies is not flowers bloom, spring comes, dawn breaks afresh every morning, caterpillars turn into butterflies. Now, you know I love all those things. I've talked about them before. I've preached on them on Easter as witnesses to the resurrection. Nevertheless, for Paul, while they may be indicators, they may be signs, Nothing about the process that Paul is describing is natural. Nothing about it is expected. It's not just something that happens. And for Paul, it is certainly not the idea that, well, they die and their memories live on. And as their bodies decay, their bodies come into the soil and are absorbed by other living things. And thus they are, in effect, born again as they come up and are fertilizing trees, flowers, etc. For Paul, none of this is natural. He grounds our change and his in the man, the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is how it starts off. Now, we're, we're in a glorious zone in our passage. Listen to the plain facts with which this chapter starts. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, He appeared also to me." Paul's not talking philosophy. He's not talking about abstract theology. He's not projecting out what might be. Paul says, listen, I'm basing all that I'm telling you right now on a historical fact. Here are the witnesses. Here are the people who saw it. Some of them are still alive. Go check. Go ask them. He hinges everything. Everything hinges on the victory of Jesus Christ over death demonstrated in his bodily resurrection, period. You will be raised because he was raised. You will be changed and have a new body because he was changed. He defeated and he will defeat death. How does he do that? How does he defeat death? Well, verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is in the law. He defeats death by taking in his body instead of in ours the very thing that caused the death, namely the stinger and the poison that was in the stinger. So he took the sting, the sin, and what he said is, may the stinger and the poison that was in the stinger be counted to me. I take on me sin, and I take on me the consequence. The sting of death is applied to me. Having fully obeyed the law, I receive the venom. And by receiving it on your behalf and raising from the dead, I remove the power 
from this thing called death and this thing called sin. This, then, is the ground for Paul of the change. But for whom? For everyone? Is Paul teaching here kind of a universalism? It's okay. Believe what you want to believe. Because everybody in the end gets to go up, gets to be changed. Not hardly. This change belongs to people who, in Paul's words, and you can go back and check this at the beginning, are characterized by three things. One, they receive the message that Paul proclaimed to them. Two, they believe in the message that Paul proclaimed to them. And three, they stand. They hold fast to the message that he proclaimed to them. The hope of Easter and of the resurrection and of the change of which we speak today belongs to those who will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and none other. It's not universalism. So the question becomes, do you believe? Will you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I probably quote this often, and appropriately so, and certainly on Easter, because this, I think, is the most simple way that you can say it. It's from Romans, Romans chapter 10, and it's this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And when the trumpet sounds, you will be changed. A part of me would like to stop right there. I would like to close it right there. But if I stop right there, I would be unfaithful both to Paul and to the Word of God. Paul has spoken here in this chapter of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which, of course, for us and for Paul, who's writing here 20-plus years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that was a past event. And Paul is speaking in this chapter of the resurrection of his and our bodies, the change. That is a future event. But as Paul speaks of the past and as he speaks of the future, he is neither a pure historian nor a futurist. Paul is talking about his today. Paul is explaining to the Corinthians why he does all he does. Why he, as he says earlier in the chapter, works harder than any of the other apostles who are out there. He works hard because Jesus was raised and he'll be raised as well. I'm going to read you a section right out of the center of uh, 1 Corinthians 15. And apart from the fact that I'm telling you it's out of the center of 1 Corinthians 15, I don't think you'd expect it to be there. Paul's reflecting on the suffering that he endures, and he says this, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, then let us eat, 
and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. What's that doing in the middle of a chapter on the resurrection? Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. See, for Paul, his thoughts on these two great things, his thoughts on the resurrection of Jesus, his hope of our resurrection and our change comes to bear in what I do today, how I live today. Do I today go on sinning? For Paul, that meant today I've got to be engaged in the task of preaching and teaching and traveling around and planting churches. For us, That means that I, today, should be involved in the task. If suffering for Jesus, then suffering for Jesus. If suffering the pains and the groanings of this world, then doing that for Jesus. Or at least of being awake and of pursuing that which is good and putting to death that which is sinful. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus and our future resurrection is a summons. They are a summons to a robust life now in the Spirit of God. Because for Paul, with the resurrection of Jesus, life has broken into a dying and decaying world. And we get a taste of it. And therefore, we will let Paul have the last words. Jesus has risen. Death will be swallowed up in victory, and in life, and you will be changed. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen.